0: Well, it's been a week since the 2018 World Cup final, and it didn't come home. It's much sadder than that, come on. Um, Particularly because it went to France. Um, Well, that's close enough, isn't it? That's basically home. It's like four miles, and then you're there. Um, It's really funny, because I'm not into football at all. Um, I don't really follow a team. Um, If you pushed me, I'd say Spurs. Uh, There we go. It's bound to stir something up, isn't it? Um, But that's only because my father-in-law and my wife are Spurs fans. Um, So this time I actually had to research all the players where I had no idea who the England team was, apart from Harry Kane. Um, So I had to look at it. I had to look at who they were. Um, But the dream died, uh, and we'll have to wait at least another four years to see if the trophy will make it back to English soil. Who knows? I must admit, though, when we beat Sweden in the quarterfinal, I, I really started to let myself dream a little bit. You know, I, I got caught up in the hype. Um, we all saw the, the videos on social media where it was the It's Coming Home was on all the radios, and there was the Delboy one and all the other ones. Um, but I found this image on, on Twitter. It looks really good, doesn't it? And that's what kind of spurred it on. It was only like an artist's impression. Um, obviously, that's not happened, so it is an artist's impression. Um, you know, But it really spurred me on, and I started to believe for once that England might win, at least the semi-final. I really didn't think we'd beat France in the final. Oh, well, maybe next time. Allez le Bleu. But the one person I was really impressed with, and I think maybe many of you would agree with me on this, was Gareth Southgate, the England manager. Yeah, he was good, wasn't he? Um, he sort of fell into the job a bit after Sam Allardyce resigned, um, It kind of pushed to resign. Uh, and since then, he's done an awful lot of work uh, to ensure that he gets the most out of the team. Uh, and I'd say he did a really great job. He's got a bit of managerial experience, but it was all the work he did leading up to the World Cup that impressed me the most. He spent time, first of all, with uh, England rugby head coach Eddie Jones, when England were on their run, winning every game in 2016. Um, I miss those days. Um, He also spent some time with the head coach of the All Blacks, just to pick up how do you create a winning culture. Um, And he also spent time with various NFL coaches in the States, just trying to work out the psychology of coaching and what makes Particularly young players, what makes them tick, what helps them to to get ready for big games. So lots of effort went into preparing the team and creating this winning culture. And now Gareth Southgate is one of the most successful England managers in decades, all because he learned how to do one thing well lead. And this is what I want to speak about today. How do we lead more effectively, more boldly, and with the kingdom of God at the centre of our leadership? Now, if you feel that you're not specifically a leader or of a business or in a church capacity, for example, please don't switch off just yet. I would really hope that what I've got to say will be encouraging for those who feel they would never be considered to lead a stag in a brewery, let alone anything else. Uh, but it's, it's not just for those who, record, who would say that they're a leader in the literal sense of the word. Um, you know, maybe you've got that in your job title, even. Um, leading competently and efficiently. And if that is you, um, then hopefully this will still be interesting to listen to. Or you can play Candy Crush for half an hour, Um, whatever you choose. A few years ago, I felt God um, show me that he's calling all of us to raise our game when it comes to leadership, becoming bolder, stronger, and more connected to the body of the church. I got the impression that God was showing me that we need to understand leadership differently, um, i.e., not, in, not just in the sense of leading a business or doing something and leading lots of people. Um, you know, we're all leaders in some capacity. You know, maybe in a place of work, in a family, your daily lives, in friendship groups, or just in a spiritual sense. I really felt at the time as if, and more so than, than ever now, um, that, that God longs for those of us who are in schools, hospitals, offices, building sites, college, un- college and universities, businesses, and just in our own homes to boldly lead in a godly way to represent what it means to be God's hands and feet in our everyday walking, talking lives. I believe it's right that we're to be bolder uh, and not ashamed of what it is we've got to say about God, not afraid of demonstrating real love in this very fake world. And that's because we've got the best source of hope and love in the world. And it wouldn't be right if we're not stepping up and leading with some confidence, you know, showing people that they don't have to be satisfied with what the world has to offer them. We need to be God's hands and feet in a broken world, leading and guiding others into hope, peace and love. It would just be a really tremendous shame, I think, if we left it to other people to lead, other people that we feel are more capable and more comfortable, because it's just not how God intended it to be. We need to begin to see ourselves as leaders, confident in the life of Jesus within us and the power that we carry to transform lives. Amen? Amen. Good. So, how do we lead? As I speak, please bear in mind that whatever it is that you feel that you're a leader of, so maybe... Maybe you have a family, you've got children, um, or maybe you don't have children, but you're, you feel actually in the family people look to you for advice and, and wisdom. Um, or maybe at work, maybe you manage people at work or whatever it is. I'd like you to imagine that and have that in your mind um, as, as I speak, and, and hopefully there'll be some ideas here that you can Im- implement. Whilst you're thinking about that, I'm going to give you 10 seconds. I need like Wimbledon, like they have towel people coming up to just... Uh, It's hotter than the sun up here, by the way. There are three caveats to this talk, however. Number one, I'm still learning about leadership. I don't have any qualifications to tell you that I'm a competent leader, uh, nor can I cover everything there is to know about leadership in 25 minutes. I'll simply offer some ideas, and you can take them or leave them. But please take them, because otherwise this is a waste of everyone's time. So how do we lead? Number one, leading requires a marathon mindset rather than a sprint to the finish. I know what it's like when you're filled with passion and hunger to fulfill a dream. You may see the bigger picture at the end and you just desperately want to get there as quickly as you can because it's really exciting. In E.P. Sanders' book, Paul, a short introduction, uh, Sanders expresses the Apostle Paul's approach to his ministry He particularly highlights the urgency of the message that God had given him, Uh, and yet Paul had this understanding that patience was required in his approach to evangelism. It says this, But despite the inevitable working of the plan of God, it was to take place in human history, and human beings are notoriously cantankerous and frequently unwilling to fit into a grand scheme." When I said that in the first service, someone went, "Amen." (laughs) (laughs) I want to be, I want to be cantankerous. (laughs) You know, it seems even the great apostle Paul understood the need to be patient uh, with people and allow events to unfold naturally, no matter how urgent he felt the message was. And I think it's really important that we remember how dramatic Paul's conversion was as well. So he would have felt. Uh, even more of a need to, to ram his message down the throat of anyone that would listen to him, um, and anyone that, that wouldn't as well. Um, but it, it's just interesting as you read through the, the letters that you pick up on this strategy that Paul seemed to have of just being patient with people, and just allowing things to unfold, and, and leading people gently. Because he was preaching um, to a really hostile world. Uh, one that was unkind to religious preachers. He was surrounded by intellectuals, philosophers, uh, some of the greatest philosophers actually of of our time, um, scientists, poets, the wealthy elite uh, and just by those just simply not interested in religion. That sounds really familiar doesn't it? I reckon we need to take a leaf out of Paul's book here. I think We we may be really eager to crack on with whatever we feel called to do, but it's imperative that we are patient, that we don't carry hidden agendas, that we spend time with people, we live with them, we we, we share life with them, um, and we share God with them gradually and gently. The Apostle Paul certainly knew the urgency of his message, but he was wise enough to know that people can see straight through a car salesman approach to sharing faith. We need to have the mindset of Paul, eager and excited to share a life-changing message, really important, but happy to wait. You know, We need this good balance, um, and we need to be happy that, to not see immediate responses and just to allow God to work at the pace of the people that we're leading. Uh, secondly, love the people you lead and make sure that they know it. This is perhaps the most obvious thing to say. But it's often the most difficult as well. When I think of this, I can't help but think of the, uh, the scenario in John 4 where Jesus meets the woman at the well. I'm just going to set the scene a little bit. Jesus is traveling with the disciples uh, heading towards Galilee, and they, they go through this town called Sychar. Uh, and John's gospel tells us that Jesus is tired, he's really tired. Um, and in all honesty, he probably fancies a break from idiots and people talking to him. Um, and, you know, he was human after all, wasn't he? You know, he would have, been, he would have wanted a break from people, um, and actually, above all, a drink. Um, so he makes his way to this well uh, and meets a Samaritan woman there, uh, and this is where it gets really interesting. Jesus starts talking to this woman, uh, which crosses all kinds of cultural boundaries, and he asks her for a drink. It was totally inappropriate for this scenario to even be taking place. Not only was it a man in private with a woman who was married, it was a Jewish man conversing with a Samaritan woman, just a big no-no. We don't have time to cover the story in depth, but, but Jesus ends up giving this woman something she really longed for, time. She just wanted time just for someone to sit with her and give her their time and listen. So Jesus listens to her, eventually revealing that he's the Messiah. And then the subject of sin pops up. And we learn a little bit about what this woman does with her life. Um, But Jesus doesn't condemn her. He just listens. And the story ends with this Samaritan woman evangelizing to the whole town, uh, seeing people come to Christianity. And it's all as a result of Jesus showing this woman love and kindness. And she knew it. And I think this is where it becomes difficult because people know if you don't love them, they know if you're putting it on, they know if you're being fake. So we've got to do it. It's got to come from a place of integrity. It's got to come from um, from a real place because love looks like selflessness. It looks like um, sacrifice. The best kind of love is unconditional. And this woman would have seen all of that that day. This is what we need to model in our leadership. Are we showing our children daily that we love them? Do we do that? Do we illustrate to our colleagues that we love them somehow? And yes, I do mean those idiots that you can't stand, that when they go on their lunch break you stay away from them because they're freaks. I even mean those people. Do you show people that you work with that you love them? What about seeing beyond people's flaws and imperfections and their little foibles that just get on your nerves? That's a really difficult one. There really is nothing worse, uh, I've discovered, than being on a team and feeling completely undervalued, expendable um, and unnoticed. Uh, Rachel and I um, spent 10 years working at New Wine um, in the summer conference and two years ago we just realised it was our last year because that happened to us. You know, We spent the whole week working uh, and it is hard work, we're up at, working at 8 in the morning until 9 at night uh, and we just realised at the end of the week, we're like, yeah, we're done. This is, we haven't been thanked, we've not been noticed at all all week. And whilst you're obviously doing it for God, you you do need people to thank you, because you're human and you like that. You know. So Rachel and I make sure, whenever possible, that we thank everyone on our youth team um, when they've given up their time for an event, uh, or if they've come to serve on a Sunday morning, do forget sometimes, but we try hard to. It's just a case of communicating to people that you lead, that they're important to you and they're crucial to your vision. Thirdly, be transparent. In March this year, I was made redundant um, from my job in a role that I felt completely safe in. Uh, I was working in an environment where I felt really supported and I felt people cared for me. um, And Opportunities were coming my way to move forward and progress in my career. Anyway, I was called in to have this meeting with my line manager and the school bursar, um, which I was expecting, since we'd had meetings, um, about me possibly moving forward into teaching. Um, and I'd had meetings of a similar nature with the same people, um, all positive, looking at how they can assist me in getting me into teaching. Um, and I was called to have another meeting, and I thought, great, yeah, that will just be another one of those meetings. So... It was a little bit of a shock to find myself in this meeting with my line manager and, and the bursar saying the words, I'm afraid that we're beginning a 30-day consultation period for your redundancy. I was a little bit more shocked since the meeting began with, with 10 minutes of me talking about how passionate I was and how I wanted to move forward and progress at the school. And they actually opened the meeting with... Um, How do you think things are going? Do you you know? How do you feel about teaching? Do you still feel like that's something you want to do here? And then they just asked me that question, which just completely tore me apart. Um, You know, I just looked at these people who knew my future, and then to have been asked about my future and know that I didn't have one, but they let me talk about it for a long time. You know, I really felt they were investing in me. I just completely, I felt completely set up and a right idiot. I actually asked them at the time, I said, what was the point of you letting me go on and on about this thing when you knew that that's exactly what was happening? And so I learned something about leadership that day. Transparency is vital if we're to be trusted. That meeting felt like the longest meeting in the world, um, but it would have felt shorter if I didn't feel like i have been lied to and and manipulated and completely embarrassed um, and as if my leaders don't care about me. Whatever it is you lead, whether it's your children, um, a business, whether you're in a team with some work colleagues or you do something at church, stay honest and open. Uh, don't, um, don't hide agendas. Don't try to trip people up. Um, allow for communication to be free and inquisitive and, in, and awkward and um, difficult and allow for that to happen. Because I know that our senior pastor, Stephen Lynn, they welcome that approach And they're happy to talk through matters without agenda and in a dialogue that's really free and open. So when they get back next Sunday, spend a week thinking of questions you want to ask them, particularly about the church finances, and talk to them next Sunday. Number four, I'm not even sorry. (laughs) Number four, be confident even if you're unsure. I cannot tell you how many times I've made a decision as a leader that I wasn't confident in. That doesn't mean I made choices that were unwise. I just mean that, more often than not, leading calls for us to simply be bold and confident, even if you don't know what decision to be bold how that, division, how that decision will affect um, like an outcome or a circumstance that you're in, or how much of an impact it's going to have on your life. When I was 19, um, a long time ago now. Uh, I spent some time in Mozambique, uh, a mission school, um, and they would have frequent opportunities for us to go on outreach to a local village. Um, When I say local, it was often about a six-hour drive. You know, you could drive through France in six hours. (laughs) Um, And we would go to minister to people and to pray for the sick and cast out demons and offer people the chance to meet Jesus and do all the stuff that's in the Bible that we read about. Um, But my first one, I was asked to sit on the PA desk at the back because they showed this um, video that they called The Jesus Film. Um, Guess what it was about? Um, And I was particularly happy because everyone else was... uh, Like, they weren't just praying for people. They were praying for pretty heavy stuff, like proper, intense... There were were demons being cast out, and there was healing going on, but it wasn't like headaches. Not that headaches aren't bad. Headaches can be awful. But they were like proper healings. There There was all sorts of stuff going on, and I thought... I'm in a pretty good place here. I'm just going to sit and watch all this unfold. Um, because if I pray for someone and they need healing, I might make it worse. They might feel worse at the end of the prayer. Or maybe I'll pray for demons to leave and more will come in. Um, so I just thought, okay, this is pretty good. I'm, I'm pretty safe here. And time went on and I suddenly realised that we're rapidly running out of this ministry team that we had. And I thought, this is terribly inconvenient because in a minute they're going to call me up and I'm going to have to pray for people and I really don't want to. And lo and behold, I'm sure you can see where this is going, uh, I was grabbed, actually grabbed, and put in front of this man. Um, and so I asked the man via translator what he needed prayer for. And desperately praying myself, please just be a headache or just something minor. Come on, come on. Um, it wasn't a headache. The man was blind. Um, so there's me, I'm stood in front of this man, um, expecting God to, to heal him and through me, just some random man from England, and frantically looking for a way out, and it, it didn't exist. Um, even the translator was looking at me with a bit of a wry smile, like, come on, we're waiting. <laughs> anyway, cutting a long story short, this man received his eyesight back that day. I know, it's great, right? And I can't tell you what that did for my confidence, particularly in leadership. I realise that God is absolutely desperate for us to be bold and to live as the Apostle lived, just naturally supernatural. Just make it natural and um, just be bold in everything that we're doing. He longs for us to be confident and lead with conviction in our hearts, even if we don't feel like we have all the answers. Because let me tell you, as a leader... Those that look to you for answers, they need you to make a call. They need you. They need you to make a decision and to to be confident in what you're doing. They need you to make choices, to live making risks, and to make a difference in the community, family, workplace, or ministry that you're leading. Be bold and expect God to reward that faith by performing miracles and changing lives for good. You might want to see that happen. I'm sure you do. Uh, But I guarantee God wants to see it happen a lot more. Uh, Fifth thing, make mistakes and learn from them. This can often be the most difficult thing to do for two reasons. Number one, we don't like making mistakes. And number two, when we do make mistakes, we desperately want to bury that as deep as possible and then never revisit again. I find this topic of uh, making mistakes and success and failure fascinating because success seems to be the way that we measure the value of a human being now. You know, success equals good grades at school, attending a prestigious university, getting a well-paid job, a nice car, a nice house, etc., etc. I'm not suggesting these things aren't good. They're good. But they shouldn't represent who we are, nor should they uh, be a guide as to how successful someone is. It's crazy, but to me, from my perspective, it's, it's the way the world seems to be working at the moment. When I was at school, uh, my careers advisor told me that I ought to go to university as a degree would separate me from a crowd of people all searching for a job, um, which is true, was true. But now everyone is advised to get a degree, so you need another guideline, like a master's degree or a PhD, um, to separate you from the crowd again. I'm not saying, once again, I'm not saying these things are not good. You know, obtaining um, a degree, putting yourself in higher education um, is wonderful. I'm I'm doing a degree at the moment, so I'd be a hypocrite if I I thought it was wrong. But it seems silly that we refer to success in these terms and only in these terms. It's incredibly um, exclusive. We can't define people like that because it means that people that can't access higher education are not that valued, or they're not valued in society as much. You know, No wonder people don't want to make mistakes. No wonder children in schools are struggling with mental health and anxiety. You know, I work in a school um, as a teaching assistant, and um, I, I work particularly with children that, that have tons of anxiety and, and mental health. Um, and it really does feel like it's on the rise. Um, I don't know if that's because of the way that data has been recorded over years, whether it's not been recorded as accurately, but it seems to me like it is. Uh, An article published by The Guardian in September 2017 states that the NSPCC found that the number of schools seeking professional help for students from the NHS Child and Adolescent Mental Health Service, known as CAMS, was 34,757 in 2017-18. That's equivalent to 183 every school day. In 2014-15... There were 25,140 referrals, so less. When you consider the stigma that is placed on achieving high grades, it really is no wonder that people don't want anything to do with mistakes. And I appreciate I've only looked at mental health in schools here, uh, and not very extensively, um, and I've only looked at our attitude towards success, um, but it is a glimmer, it's a reflection of the way our society, um, the kind of thing that, the kind of. Importance that's placed on succeeding, um, and our attitude towards mistakes and failure. But what if I was to show you that our weakness, our mistakes, and our failings only gives room for for God to bring His power. In Second Corinthians twelve, Paul is talking about a thorn in his flesh, um, and I haven't haven't studied this, so I don't I don't know what it was precisely. I don't know if it was a physical pain or like a spiritual pain that that. That Paul felt and he was talking about, but he refers to a weakness of some sort. In verse 9 and 10, Paul mentions um, how he brings it to God, and then God says to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I'd like to think that it's time we start thinking a bit differently about mistakes. And maybe you're sat there and you feel like you, you do punish yourself too much when you make a mistake, or that you dwell on it too much. You overanalyze it. Perhaps it's time to stop. And you know, I've been there myself, I know what that feels like. But the truth is that when we make mistakes as leaders, it's only ever an opportunity for God to reveal his power and his strength. In whatever capacity you lead, when you make a mistake, it actually does two positive things, I think. Uh, Number one, it makes you more human, more relatable and approachable. And number two, when you make a mistake and then learn from it by adapting your behaviour or your approach, you show whoever it is you're leading, your children colleagues, whoever it is, that you're someone that can be trusted. And in a spiritual setting, people will benefit from God moving in your weakness as well. So those were five tips that hopefully you may find useful in terms of how to lead. Like I said, the plan um, is that you can apply these to any area you see yourself as a leader um, in, in whichever way you want. Um, and hopefully it's been useful. If you do not currently see yourself as a leader and you feel like that's the, the last thing you would ever consider yourself as, maybe it's time to alter your thinking. I don't know. We'll pray in a moment. Uh, just a few more things post-script before I close. Um, leading can actually be very lonely. You may imagine that because someone's in a position of leadership, so therefore they know lots of people, they go to lots of meetings, they socialise a lot, that they're going to be um, they're not going to be isolated. But often, it's, it's the opposite. If you're in leadership, it is, you can feel isolated a lot. Um, you know, often, you have to make really brave and sometimes unpopular decisions um, that disappoint lots of people. Um, sometimes you have uncomfortable conversations with people and you feel often as if you're the only one that has passion for whatever it is you're involved in. You know, you feel like no one else cares about whatever it is you're leading. Uh, and it can be incredibly, incredibly lonely. Uh, it's also really super easy to fall into a trap of stagnating, losing momentum, and actually forgetting your end goal. I've done this so many times. Um, I know it sounds really daft. Um, but it's normally when I've been tired or a bit under pressure or, or something else is going on in my life. Because when you, when you find yourself in a leadership role, for example... Um, you get into a nice little rhythm because you you set things up and then they tick along and then you you find other team members and then they they crack on and and you get into a rhythm and you soon, I know it sounds really silly, but you feel like you just, everything's just going along and it it can become um, a little bit stagnant and it it, it sounds stupid, but you forget what you're actually doing. You forget why you're doing it. So if you've noticed that this has happened, tell your leader, because I'm sure they're going to thank you for that. However, if you're leading and you're feeling like this has happened to yourself, maybe take some time, um, just some practical ideas, take some time to network with other people to, to gain new ideas. Rachel and I have found that absolutely invaluable over, over years, just to talk to other, other youth leaders um, from varying sizes. We, we spoke to and got to know um, Susie, who at, at the time was youth pastor at Trent Vineyard, um, of a youth group of hundreds of youth, so much bigger than, than what we have here. Uh, But it's just been so useful just to gain knowledge from people. Um, Or talk to your team members and just try and find out why it's happening. Oh, and um, final thing. If you're a leader and you feel you've got no vision, that's okay. That's a bit of a secret, and some of the leaders may disagree with me. Um, But about two years ago, I felt I no longer had a vision um, for youth Uh, Not to say I didn't care about being a youth pastor anymore or that it wasn't interesting or anything. I just didn't have a vision for it. And it really bothered me. It bothered me for weeks and weeks. I gave myself a lot of grief over it. And eventually I thought, you know what? It's probably a good idea to pray about this. It took me weeks though. Uh, And I asked God for a vision and he gave me a vision in six really simple words. Talk to young people about me. That was it. Simple. But actually... When you boil the work of a youth pastor right down to its core, that's essentially all you're doing. Um, So if you've got a vision, brilliant, carry on. If you don't, don't beat yourself up about it. Just take it right down to its simple foundation. So that was a crash course on leadership there. Like I said at the beginning, I can't cover everything there is to know. Um, And if you are in a leadership role of something specific, then obviously you'll have your own training to do. And there'll be things that you might want to look into a little bit more in terms of leadership styles or maybe parenting or people management and all sorts of things. But my aim really has to look more broadly um, at how to lead in all aspects of leadership. And hopefully you can apply them to whatever field of leadership you're currently involved in. I can't express enough, though, how important it is that we are to be bold and courageous. For God calls us to be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. That's Joshua 1 verse 9. I know that's a message for Joshua concerning concerning something completely different. But if it's good enough for Joshua, it's good enough for me. Our leadership has to look different. It must bring a different message. We need to empower people, give them hope, show them the gospel um, uh, with the way that we live our lives. It's got to be different to anything people already have access to. and We have to lead people, uh, bringing them closer to Jesus and and freedom, actually. Um, Sometimes leadership doesn't feel like you're being led into freedom, but we need to lead people there. Remember, though, number one, we need to invest in people. Having a marathon mindset. Remember Paul and the patience he had with people and his strategy. We have got an urgent message to give, but we need to do things relationally um, and introduce people to Jesus gradually and gently. If they say no, that's okay. But be patient and committed to them, not for any other reason than you want to show them love. Relationship for relationship's sake, not with an agenda of conversion or anything like that. Number two, Love the people you lead and make sure they know it. People need to know that they're loved. It doesn't matter who they are, what they look like, where they're from, what their background is. People need it and they need to know that you care about them, that you love them. Number three, lead with transparency. The people that follow you need to know they can trust you. It doesn't matter whether it's your kids, um, your boss, even your friends, family, work colleagues, whoever. Um, we need to be contagious with faithfulness and trust in a world that's full of conceit, and backstabbing behaviour and backbiting. And before, be bold, be confident, and love every opportunity you get to be strong when you feel weak, to make decisions when you may not be 100% sure on the outcome, uh, and lead with conviction. Be persuasive about the truth that you've got in your heart and the power of the gospel. And finally, make mistakes and learn from them. Uh, Rachel and I have made dozens of mistakes in our time As you pastors, some of them are awful and really make me cringe, uh, but they totally shaped who I am today and who Rachel is as well. I'm sure she'd agree. So make mistakes, own them, uh, and then move on. It proves that you're human, it proves you're not weird, and it makes you approachable and dependable.